The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Do you ever wonder why we can recall negative memories so vividly, but have a tough time remembering the happier ones? A little while back, I had a client who could recall what he was wearing the afternoon he found out he didn't get in to the graduate program he really wanted to enroll in. It was a black button-down shirt with one button missing and a pair of blue Levi's with a bit of a fray on the right leg. And he could remember the burnt smell of the pizza he was reheating from the night before but he couldn't recall what he had done on his most recent birthday or anything about the moment he got a huge promotion a few months back, except that he knew he was happy. I know that I will most likely always remember what I was wearing and the quality of the air and even what my husband and son were wearing when we were leaving that Santa Monica Kids Museum on the January morning that we found out that Kobe had died. But I try to test myself. What did we do on our last anniversary? After a while and some Google photo investigation, I found a picture and I could start to recall details about the day. It turns out this is actually all quite natural. Evidence suggests that evolution is behind our ability to remember negative memories more easily than the positive ones. But when we talk about thriving in today's world and really increasing our mental health, adopting a growth mindset, more grit, compassion, gratitude, self-worth, and so on, we sort of have to face the elephant in the room head on. The elephant I'm referring to is something in the psychology world that we call the negativity bias. In order to start working our way through the negativity bias, we need to start to skillfully practice focusing on and actually marinating in the positive moments that happen in our everyday life. It sort of sounds all very simple. And the thing is, it can be. But it takes intention and effort. And well, sort of going against what we naturally gravitate towards. My guest on this episode of Looking Up is psychologist Rick Hansen. He's a senior fellow of the Greater Good Center at UC Berkeley and a New York Times bestselling author. His books like Hardwiring Happiness, Neurodharma, and Buddha's Brain have been translated into 29 different languages. And he's here to talk us through practical and useful ways to rewire our brains to be more open to learning from our positive moments and experiences. Oh, and also what neuroplasticity and Tibetan proverbs have in common. As someone who specializes in blending together holistic practices and real evidence-based science, I may or may not have totally geeked out in this episode. We talk about the relationship between modern science and ancient wisdom. I love science. You guys so know I do. But as Rick points out, science can't always explain the divine or even ordinary realities. Like why you might like vanilla ice cream more than chocolate ice cream, or why you love who you love, or how you love the way you love. And in reality, I've learned that holding a true scientific attitude is actually recognizing that there is always possibility. And there are answers that have yet to be revealed. Yeah, we go deep here. But in true looking up fashion, we focus on the tools and how you can implement them. You actually might want to get your notebook out for this one because there are so many practical, useful tips and aha moments in this episode. Don't say I didn't warn you. I'm Rick Hansen. I'm a psychologist, 
longtime meditation teacher, as well as someone who's deeply interested in the brain. And in particular, I care a lot about helping people to develop lasting inner strengths of different kinds, grit, gratitude, compassion, strengths like these that are so important for everyday well-being, as well as for being resilient, bouncing back, and being able to offer a lot to others along the way. Just that alone makes so much sense why you're on this podcast, because we have a lot in common, and I'm so looking forward to learning from you. You're in Northern California, right? Yeah, San Rafael, north of San Francisco. We are in Los Angeles. I grew up in LA, West Covina. Really? And I went to LA, moved north uh, as soon as I could. I'm a UCLA alum too. I've done pretty much everything there, including my postdoctoral fellowship. My husband did his MBA there as well. I did my undergrad. So we're a big UCLA family. Before we start with the meat of everything, and I'm literally jumping on the edge of my seat to start because I have so many questions for you. The way we format looking up is there's a little section in the beginning that we call looking in. And it's just a very short rapid fire questions in which myself and our listeners can get a chance to know you a little bit more intimately and past just what you do professionally. So without much thought or judgment, just whatever comes to mind. So the first one, is there a book or some writing or a quote or a piece of advice that you have read or received that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Yeah, actually, one book certainly was Dune by Frank Herbert, the science fiction classic. I read it when I was 15. And the story itself is about learning in a lot of ways. And this is a young prince who's essentially taught by his mother in various ways arts of combat and reading other people and influencing them, who then has to learn about an entirely new culture that he is landed in to wage a war eventually that defeats an evil emperor. And deeper than the science fiction tropes in the story was this fundamental notion that hit me with incredible optimism, thinking about what your show is centered around, in that as someone who was very miserable and unhappy and contracted and awkward, and it just seemed terribly hopeless to me at the time when I was 15, I realized that no matter how bad the past had been, no matter how bad the present was, I could always grow a little every day from here. Spot on. And we are so going to talk about optimism and real optimism in a little bit. Okay, so next question. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think I'm mellow, but I'm actually a wild man. (laughs) In that, I've just done a lot of wild stuff. I came of age in the 60s and human potential, wild, wild stuff. Done a lot of wild stuff in outdoors. I was busted in a German jail for a few hours before I was released. That's the whole story. So yeah, I'm pretty mellow, but I'm also kind of a wild man. I love that. Okay, use three words to describe yourself as a teenager during your high school years. Miserable, observant, and gritty. Mm. Last time you cried. A couple hours ago, I got teary talking about something with somebody. It's been a long while since I've, I would say, sobbed. One of the last times I was was on a meditation retreat, actually, in, in a way that was really good and healing. And without much thought or judgment, three things that have brought you joy, 
today. Today, almond flour cookies that I made a while ago, being able to help my wife by putting up a shade over a window and feeling, honestly, a kind of simpatico with you here and now. I love that. I love that you said feeling that little bit of simpatico. Yes. I'm feeling that too. I love this. Okay. Are you an optimist? Depending on how we define that word, not to be pedantic, yes. Very much so. Yes. You know, I I talk a lot about this idea that we aren't really prone to being optimistic. And a lot of times from an evolutionary perspective, we're actually more prone to be pessimistic. And that really came from the days that we were running away from saber-toothed tigers and having to imagine the worst case scenarios and those people survived and then passed that on. And I know you talk about that too. And you really talk about this idea of the negative bias, the negativity bias. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that and how that really plays into all of this and the idea of, you know, what we take from the good experiences and what we're more prone to take from the bad experiences. Well, so much good in all that. I think of optimism myself as having to do in some ways with confidence about what the future Mm -hmm. will bring. And it's important to appreciate, I've been thinking about this proverb lately, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. So can we be realistically, legitimately optimistic about the next minute and the minute after that and the minute after that? And I think that if we can have some informed prediction of the future, confidence about the future that says, whatever the next minute holds, I can endure it and I can somehow grow from it. And along the way, I can hold on to my virtues. I can be a decent, honorable person in it. And I can keep my heart open and love others no matter what, right? By which I do not mean necessarily loving others that have mistreated us or things like that. I just mean, can we retain a fundamentally loving heart? And if we can, We can certainly be optimistic about that. And more generally, if we have faith in, confidence means, as you know, confide, you know, faith in. If we can have Mm -hmm. faith in, confidence in, our capacity to grow inner resources, inner strengths of various kinds, we can then also have a realistic hopefulness that whatever our possibilities are, we will maximize them within the range of whatever is available to us. So. That to me is why I'm an optimist and why I think, um, and what I think genuine optimism is born by, it it really has to do a lot with learning. Does someone have a a growth curve and a growth mindset? So then that then speaks to, as you said, very much the negativity bias of the brain, which is like a bottleneck that limits and restricts positive learning, like learning resilience, learning gratitude, learning mindfulness, learning emotional intelligence, the negativity bias restricts that, and it makes us overlearn anxiety, irritation, and defeat. And we have a brain in a nutshell that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. Mm-hmm. So why we have that, I mean, the short version is that our ancestors needed both to get carrots and avoid sticks, carrots like food, sticks like predators. Both are important, but if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance to win tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, including aggression in your band or between bands, whack, no more carrots forever. So we have a brain that does five things by design really fast, scans for bad news, 
over-focuses upon it, over-reacts to it, over-remembers it, and meanwhile gets sensitized to the negative along the way through the activity of the stress hormone cortisol. So, you know, in effect, we have a brain that's really good at learning from bad experiences, but relatively bad at learning from good experiences, even though learning from good experiences of psychological resources is the primary way or path that we grow strengths inside for resilient well-being every day of our life. So would you say that being able to focus more on the positive experiences and learn from them is sort of like a muscle that we have to work out and really intentionally do that work to focus on it since the opposite is sort of happening on autopilot? Yeah. Deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. And Mm -hmm. when we turn to the good, we're not doing that to minimize the bad or deny it or suppress it or overlook it, including the bad in society. The bad, uh, I was talking earlier today with somebody about the situation in which in America, for example, one in five children lives below the poverty line in our country. Mm -hmm. The worst statistic of any developed country in the world, much worse, in fact, than many developing ones. So, you know, we have to see the bad. On the other hand, we can recognize what is also true. Things that are still working, uh, we can recognize what is true inside ourselves. And then when we recognize the good, when we turn to the good, take in the good, slow down the brain so that it can actually convert that experience of grit, compassion, gratitude, self-worth, skillfulness with a partner, and so forth, can turn that momentary experience into a lasting change in the brain. And the dirty little secret and the helping professions, including my own as a psychotherapist, is that most of the experiences people have leave no lasting trace behind all that money is wasted. It's left on the table. It's like all the value washes through the brain like water through a sieve, but moments of exasperation or conflict with another person or criticism of oneself, resentment toward others, those stick to us, right? Like to Velcro. Absolutely. And it so reminds me of so many situations with patients I've had over time. And, And it reminds me of one really particular at Cedars when I was doing my fellowship and, um, you know, this patient, he was talking about going to this party and even he could even recall to me the situation in the party where, you know, maybe five different people had said something positive to him and he sort of glazed over it, but he did tell me because I wouldn't have known had he not told me. But then we spent probably a huge percentage of our session talking about this one person who just happened to give him a look that he perceived as bad and asked him a question of like, oh, that's what you chose to wear to the party? Just, it could have been neutral, could have been positive, could have been negative, but obviously that was his perception. And about five other people had definitely done things that got him a drink, complimented him, brought up the last time they saw each other, danced with him. And we can all find those examples in our own life as well. And I think there's some solace in the fact that what we're saying here and what you're saying here is it's sort of, there's a reason for it that our brains gravitate towards that. And it has an evolutionary perspective. But having said that, it's not necessarily what is working for us now. Totally agree. And to me, one of the huge takeaways is to help yourself, to be active inside your own mind. We understand why kids need to be active learners in fourth grade. Well, what about being active learners in our own social, emotional, motivational, attitudinal, somatic, even spiritual learning. And one way we can do that is to take in the good. 
And there are different ways Mm -hmm. to do it. I've developed this a lot. Three quickies for me, any one of the three are good, all three are better, is to stay with the experience for a breath or longer. So for example, your client, you know, obviously could have stayed with the experience for a breath or longer of those other good events that were occurring. Second, try to feel it in your body. As you feel things in the body, as you know, um, certainly uh, it will increase, you know, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. It will tend to increase the conversion from state to trait. Feel it in your body. Also, focus on what feels good about it. What's enjoyable? What's rewarding? That will increase activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain, which will tend to increase the registration of the experience as a lasting physical change of neural structure and function. And what I've just described there takes less than a handful of seconds to do multiple times a day. But as we do it, and we can take longer with something really important, maybe once a day that we want to really register and sink into, as we do that, we radically steepen our growth curve uh, over the course of the day, the week, and then the life, much like Paul Muad'Dib in the novel Dune. Yes, exactly. Going right back to that. I love this on so many different levels and find it obviously to be so true. And I think that it also makes me think about right now in a lot of the work I do, um, maybe it's because I'm living in Los Angeles during this time, but you can't really get past, at least in the last five years, someone in LA without using the M word manifestation and this idea of how to get more of what I want. And I always like to tell, that's a whole different thing, but I always like to tell people we so often focus so much of our energy on what we don't have or what we do want and so little energy on what we've already created that we currently have and are enjoying and we've we've worked really hard for. And it kind of reminds me of that. What's sort of the point of continuously working towards something and achieving it if not to take the time and appreciate what it is and the feeling that you get from actually having it and all the work you've put into having it. But also what you were saying, it, it reminded me of, for those of you that don't know, Rick, can I call you Rick or Dr. Hanson? Please, what, yeah. Rick, Rick gave a really, really, really amazing TEDx Marin talk a few years back. And I'd love for you to talk about how you came up with this tool of really sitting in the good and and marinating in it from having a childhood in which you felt sort of unincluded. Yeah. Oh, Sure. I grew up with loving, decent parents who were both, I think, poor at empathy. And also, I skipped a grade as a kid, and I have a very late birthday. So I was very young going through school, which led to many experiences, in part due to my kind of shy, dorkish temperament, (laughs) that led to many experiences of feeling excluded, unseen, left out, and on the verge of getting bullied. Not quite, but close to it. So Mm -hmm. when I finally went to college at 16, it felt like there was a huge hole in my heart. I wasn't horribly treated. I wasn't abused or traumatized, but there really definitely was the absence of the good. So I landed in you know, college with this aching hole in my heart. And um, I began to realize that if I noticed good facts, by good, I mean facts of somebody smiling at me or including me or inviting me to go into something. And then if I let myself feel it, so this is important. We have to do three things. We have to see the good facts, then we have to feel them. So it's not just a conceptual passing notion. We feel them. And then third, really important, take them in. Slow it down to help your neurons wire together, not just fire together in a passing sort of way. 
And what I noticed was that as soon as I started to do that, I began to feel better. It also changed my day because then I, with this, in effect, growth mindset, I was looking for opportunity. I was looking for evidence of of what I longed for. Also, I was treating myself like I mattered. Right. That my own life mattered uh, as a kid who grew up not really feeling that he mattered enough to other people. So that was another bonus benefit. And then years later, I began to understand that this little practice I did, five seconds here, 30 seconds there, maybe while falling asleep, I would marinate on a particular, you know, white light moment I had that day with a girl who smiled at me in the elevator, say, Mm -hmm. something like that. You know, gradually, I began to feel much more confident, less uh, insecure, less inadequate, less depressive, and it really, really helped me. But this is the fundamental process of helping ourselves become a little more healed, a little happier, a little more effective every day in lasting ways. That is so interesting in the way in which you put it. You have to be open and you have to be curious in order to learn anything. And the fact is that it doesn't have to be, you know, a like writing a dissertation. It's these little moments that you can literally learn from every single day. And I know you talk about this idea of the inner temple. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this idea of self-compassion that is really, that you talk about as well, that is so important, especially when you're going through a difficult time, which we all have, you know, starting right from the pandemic and then everything else that's transpired. But as a society, um, really universally, actually, we were, you know, going through, through a traumatic time. And so if you can talk a little bit about compassion. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think first, uh, we always have to start with what it's like to be us. What's it like to be you? How's it going? What's just the truth? It's the truth inside yourself. And it may not be appropriate or safe to let other people in on the truth of how it is for you. But at least inside your innermost sanctuary, your inner temple, we must tell the truth to ourselves. That's the absolute foundation of mental health. It's the absolute Mm -hmm. foundation of effective coping. We claim what we see and we claim in our inner core what we value. We know what we care about and why and what our personal priorities are, which may not be those of, of the others around us. And we claim for ourselves the knowing of what we're going to do. This is absolutely fundamental. It's central autonomy. And that includes recognizing our own sorrow and, and stresses and difficulties. But before you go on, how can someone that may have trouble with that sort of sharpen that skill for themselves to really know themselves, especially in this world where it's so fast paced. And um, I think a lot of people are losing their relationship to their own intuition. How do we, do you have any tips on that? Oh yeah. Uh, Well, you're, I think you're right to slow me down to highlight it because uh, it's central. So uh, there are many reasons you're, you're a therapist. So I'm a therapist. There are many reasons why people lose touch with themselves. I was numb from the neck down is how I put it when I landed in college. There are reasons why people are out of touch with themselves. And sometimes there's trauma. There's sometimes a painful history. Stuff understandably is shoved into the basement and the door is locked. Okay. All that's true. And that's why I think it's important to resource ourselves first so that as we gradually open up, it's not like opening a trap door to hell. So resources include things like mindfulness, being able to uh, sustain an awareness of something with a little separation between you and it, 
kind of a witnessing quality, disidentifying from it, stepping back from the movie of your life so you can witness it without suppressing it, but you're not hijacked by it. That's something to create if you can. Another resource is to build up the sense of your own grittiness. <laughs> you're a tough cookie. You can sort, you can right. deal with this. You could feel it. It totally sucks, but it will not destroy you to feel this feeling for 20 seconds, right? So you resource yourself and then you gradually open to it. I think slowing it down is really important. I think also claiming the right and recognizing that just because you're feeling it and being honest with yourself about what you're feeling doesn't mean you need to reveal it to anybody. Mm. Declaring that position to yourself gives you privacy rights, lets you kind of explore privately. Then you can open the door if you want to certain key people who are trustworthy, but you don't have to. When you do those things for yourself, it's sort of like creating the fences or mm -hmm. the, the sacred ground of your inner temple so that you know when you go in there, you really can be your, your, your whole self, your full self. It's also, I think, important in terms of the resources that enabled you to open the trapdoor uh, or just in general to be in touch with oneself is, like you said, self-compassion. And recognizing that you can do something different. You don't have to do what other people have done. This is your chance to be what you, how you want to be treated. That's right. You can treat yourself well here. And then minute by minute, the years take care of themselves, right? Bit by bit, breath by breath. Yeah. And, and I think that it's so important to note that all of this takes time and space to give to yourself to get to know yourself. So really like actually practically speaking, needing, even if it is a few seconds or a couple minutes, that quiet alone time to dig in and go in, which I think a lot of times we forget and I can speak for myself how important that is. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, we lose touch with our intuition is we literally don't have that time and space anymore. And so really having to make that a priority, even if it's small bits. I think that's right. And it's so interesting that people often who have the most affluent life uh, feel they have the least time. It's, mm. it's a real irony. And actually, I, mm -hmm. I'm also kind of haunted by something that a uh, schools consultant I worked with a long time ago. I've done a lot of work with kids in schools and so forth. And he was someone who would help families find an appropriate boarding school for their kid. And he was describing a wealthy bedroom community in north of San Francisco, fairly upper middle class, suburban, affluent community. And he said, you know, it's interesting that people in this county, many parents in this county will give their kids everything except their time. Mm, that is so... Yeah, it's haunting, so isn't right. it? And they've done, it's very haunting. And they've done a lot of studies on that as well, just on what kids remember and what they really, like they don't remember the fancy cars or the yeah. the new shiny toys or what their space or their home really look like. They really remember the attention that you gave them. Yeah. And the quality of it. Yeah. Same with ourselves. I mean, can we give ourselves right. 10 good minutes a day, honestly, whether it's in a formal practice of, you know, five minutes of meditation before you head off to work or right. just a little bit here, a little bit there, or, or just slowing it down like other people come at us. We don't have to respond immediately. We can literally take a breath <laughs> before we right. reply. We can gather ourselves. We can establish a sense of being on our own side, which is one of the most fundamental inner strengths of all, the sense of being for yourself, a friend to yourself, not against others, but an ally to yourself. To, to locate that and to locate a sense of your own 
healthy or your own appropriate legitimate need that you have and not getting so distracted and sometimes manipulated, frankly, by other people to go chasing shiny objects. Keep going after, okay, what's important to you today? The busier the outer world gets, the quieter that the inner world needs to be. So many like nuggets of wisdom here and the way in which you say them, I think are like, there's so many, I'm like, I want to put that on like a bumper sticker. (laughs) (laughs) You talk a lot about neuroplasticity. And before we kind of talk a little bit more about that, just in case some people out there don't exactly know what neuroplasticity is, in your words, could you define that? Oh, yeah. Uh, Whether it's a child learning to walk instead of crawl or an adult like me learning how to be more patient in close quarters in the time of COVID, um, Mm -hmm. we learn. Well, any kind of learning broadly, including emotional learning, social learning, somatic learning, healing from trauma learning, any kind of learning must involve a physical change in the body, primarily in the nervous system whose headquarters is the brain. So that process of becoming a little happier each day, a little wiser, a little stronger, a little more skillful, a little more loving each day, that process involves changing your brain in terms of its structure and function. That's what neuroplasticity is. And the ways in which the brain changes are increasingly well understood. There's a famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire wire together. together. Yeah, they literally start wiring together. Existing connections get stronger, weaker, depending on learning. You can increase ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters, neurochemicals like dopamine or oxytocin, uh, norepinephrine, serotonin, things like that. Even without medication, you can make these Mm -hmm. changes. And research is increasingly showing, which is really motivating and hopeful, that sustained practices of uh, even informal kinds, uh, like gratitude practices Mm -hmm. or psychotherapy or mindfulness meditation practices, self-loving kindness practices, self-compassion practices, gradually change your brain in measurable ways uh, that scientists can increasingly detect. So to sum up, what we practice grows stronger in a nutshell. Mm. What are we practicing Mm -hmm. each day? Are we practicing resentment or Are we practicing compassion? Are we practicing self-doubt? Or are we practicing a recognition, healthy optimism of our own capabilities and what the future might hold? Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about this this idea of how mindfulness gets misunderstood. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I love mindfulness. And even though it kind of sort of loosely gets associated with Buddhism, I think about the saying in kindergartens I've been in, pay attention, be nice, share your toys. You know, the foundation of that is paying attention. Or we have the classic uh, quote from William James, that the education of attention would be the education par excellence. Because attention is the front end of who we are becoming. So if we're not able to establish sustained present moment awareness, which is the fundamental definition of mindfulness, We don't have any, we're not masters of our own house, right? Because then our attention is getting dragged here and there. And what we start paying attention to gradually becomes sucked into our brain, especially if it's negative. So it's really, attention is like a spotlight on top of a vacuum cleaner. It illuminates what it rests upon while sucking it into the brain, biased negatively. So mindfulness is absolutely fundamental. Yes, I love that. What? is the relationship from your perspective between modern science and ancient wisdom? And what does that 
really mean to you? How are the two alike? How are they different? And how can they be used together to really benefit our lives? Oh, you're going, as we wrap up here, into the deep end of the pool. I love that. (laughs) Well, um, so I'm a practical guy. There are people who do sort of theology professionally, philosophy professionally. It's not me. I'm a therapist. I'm in the the trenches. I want to help people down here. And what strikes me is that we can know ourselves in basically two ways. We can know ourselves from the outside in through science. We can also know ourselves from the inside out through self-awareness and psychology and the wisdom traditions around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when you put those together, when you combine, let's say, modern psychology and brain science with the perennial wisdom around the world, including the first people, the indigenous people, the native people, the shamanic traditions and other ways of describing that around the world, wow, you have tremendous information about yourself. The one contemplative tradition that I'm most familiar with is the original teachings of the Buddha. So I'm pretty knowledgeable about that. And they're very psychological. So I'll give you a little example. One of the core encouragements of the Buddha, kind of as a coach, a teacher who didn't claim supernatural powers, who just said, hey, I did these practices myself. They led to really good results for me. Uh, There's a relationship between the efforts I made and the results I got. Here's my recommendation for you. You know, see for yourself what makes sense, which I think is very consistent with the spirit in which he actually did teach. So you could take it in completely pragmatic, non-religious terms. One of the things he really emphasized was attention to the hedonic tone of experiences as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and I would add myself heartfelt or relational. Pay attention to the hedonic tone of our experiences and what happens next. This was something he was teaching 2,500 years ago, long before MRIs and EEGs. And yet, we now are understanding that the limbic system, loosely defined of the brain, particularly the amygdala, there are two of them, as you know, one on each side of the brain, those systems that are really ancient in terms of the 600 million year evolution of the nervous system, like 200 million years, kind of when they began to develop. Anyway, those parts of the brain are continually tracking our experience as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, relational, and then initiating various drives and responses and emotions right there we have an opportunity to put a kind of shock absorber in so that we can experience things that are unpleasant without moving into anger or fear or helplessness about them, but instead muster a resilient coping response. Or we can experience things as pleasant, pleasurable, without moving into drivenness or addiction related to them. Mm -hmm. Or we can experience issues in relationships, you know, mistreatment by others so we can feel let down, resentful, inadequate, while not tipping into ill will, vengeance, and violence. We can pay attention to what happens after the hedonic tone. So in a sense, the Buddha 2,500 years ago uh, and the tradition in which he taught anticipated the modern neuropsychological discoveries. Wow. Yes. And so would you say then that it's really this ancient wisdom that sort of drives modern science to research what it does. Or would you say sometimes that happens and other times it just happens to be that they match up? 
Oh, well, do you know the, what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I do actually. In, in this deep end <laughs> of the pool stuff. So, yeah, two sort of quick threads woven together here. One thread is if you want to understand something, study people who are really good at it. Well, if you're interested in developing resilient well-being, mm-hmm. unshakable inner peace a heart that is courageous while being compassionate, even with one's adversaries. If, let's suppose, you're interested in developing these qualities, as a, as a whether it's as a practical person, a therapist, or as a scientist, or sometimes, in your case, I think, the combination of the two. Um, so it helps to study people who are exemplars of that. From a science standpoint, if you're interested in people who are exemplars, of mindfulness, or who are exemplars of self-knowledge, or who are exemplars of the capacity to remain compassionately effective with their adversaries, that tends to draw you a lot, not entirely, but a lot to people in the contemplative traditions who've made that their life's work. Now, they're found mainly in religious circles. Increasingly, we have secular mindfulness with people who have a 30-year practice. They've been really banging on it for a while. They are, as Richie Davidson, University of Wisconsin would put it, the Olympic athletes of mental training. So, you know, much as we would try to understand how in the world did Michael Jordan, you know, be such Mm -hmm. a good basketball player, uh, we would study people who can retain a fundamental serenity we would want to investigate these people. And I think to myself, we have a lot we can learn from them. That would be point one. Point two, you know, the big question of what can science say about the transcendental or the divine or what is beyond or distinct from ordinary reality? That's a huge, messy topic. And Mm -hmm. there are people in the science community, uh, even in public policy, who are very leery of things like mindfulness because they come to us through a religious tradition. I think it's clear that we can extract mm-hmm. states of mind that people, you know, like people describe pain. Pain is a state of mind. Um, it's really hard to get a valid external measure of subjective pain, but people clearly have subjective pain. We can study subjective pain. Well, we can study subjective serenity. We can study awe. We can study the capacity to really remain in the present no matter what's happening, right? We can study those things. And in the process of studying them, we can understand their neural correlates. Now, maybe, maybe, and I'm a yes to the maybe question here. Maybe, <laughs> as Hamlet said to Horatio, there are, what, stranger things that are dreamt of in all your philosophies, something like that. And I think that's a truly scientific attitude to recognize possibility that mm-hmm. much as within Clearly, within ordinary reality, there are things that are true that we think of as ordinary. We don't need to involve God necessarily in the fact that a person loves their child or, you know, really likes vanilla, doesn't really like chocolate. If you like vanilla ice cream more than chocolate ice cream, no scientist in the world can prove that. But it's a fact within ordinary reality. So there's plenty of stuff within ordinary reality that science can't measure. I love science. I'm deeply grateful for science. Thank goodness for science, right? And still, I suspect that there are factors in play in the upper reaches, especially of human consciousness, or even factors in play in just everyday experience that are ultimately rooted beyond ordinary reality, beyond or distinct from the 
Big Bang universe, the four-dimensional Big Bang universe as we understand it. And I don't preach that. I don't try to persuade people to that. I name it as a possibility. And otherwise, I'm quite happy to function almost entirely inside a completely secular frame. Is this the type of stuff that people can find in Neurodharma, your new book? Oh, thank you for going there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I want to I want to go there. And I actually want to know from you in three sentences, if you can, describe Neurodharma. Oh, sure. Yeah. The book is about studying people who've gone as far as any humans can go in terms of their well-being, their love, their happiness, and their wisdom, and then reverse engineer for us, what we can develop hardwired in the neural circuitry of our own body so that we develop these seven qualities more and more in everyday life. Seven qualities being steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, equanimity, fullness of being, a sense of contentment already, those three, steadiness, lovingness, and fullness. And also develop a sense of wholeness, feeling whole and complete as we are, in the present moment, receiving nowness, living really in the present moment, while opening into allness, while feeling connected to and supported by, rather than separated from and beleaguered in terms of all that is, last on the edge of timelessness, with an intuition of, the, of stillness, vastness, and possibility. So those are the seven, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. So the book is about, in extremely experiential, down-to-earth down ways, supported whenever possible by current research on how the brain changes for the better over time or can change for the better over time. These, what happens in the book is people develop these seven qualities, so increasingly they're stable they become increasingly established in you, in your own path of awakening, whatever that might be. That was more than three sentences, sorry. That's okay. I, I'm so excited about this book. And also I love the name of it, obviously. Huh. Neurodharma. Um, Dharma coming from India. the Buddhist, in India, really you know, The Sanskrit. truth of things. Yeah, Sanskrit. The truth of things, yeah, Dharma. So two, two, two truths, two ways of knowing right. the truth, the sort of outside in, neuro, inside out, yep. Dharma exactly what we're talking about, blending together modern science and ancient wisdom. Um, I, I love that. Mm. And um, before we end, I was wondering if, um, and I may put this somewhere else, but I really love the, what you, in your TED um, X talk, and it can be a lot shorter, but I love how you, how uh, you took everyone through a sort of practical experience in how we could all uh, take a moment to think about something that is a positive experience to really, truly in that moment, illustrate for us how we can actually change our brains. Oh, sure. So I'm wondering if you could take us through something like that. Yeah. The harder a person's life, the more the world is kicking them in the teeth or not helping them at all. The more important it is to develop inner resources, inner strengths inside, to gradually fill the inner cupboard as best we can a breath at a time, a minute at a time, a day at a time. So the methods we're talking about, which sometimes are learned from people who've spent 30 years meditating in a cave in Tibet, these methods are really useful for and appropriate for the 
madness and stress and craziness of everyday life. That's a really, really, really important point. And as an illustration of that, I'll take you to, through the three breaths practice. It's just three breaths, three breaths that'll change your life. Uh, you want to do it with me? I would absolutely love to. Okay, great. If you're driving a car, please keep being careful <laughs> about <laughs> yes. the situation you're in. All right. So in the first breath, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. In the second breath, breathing while feeling caring, perhaps particularly aware of the area around your heart, maybe a hand on your heart, bringing to mind someone that you are friendly toward, you have compassion for, maybe you love, keeping it simple, focusing on the feelings of caring, breathing while feeling caring. And then in the third breath, which can be a little challenging sometimes, breathing while feeling cared about. Keeping it simple, bringing to mind what it's like to be with someone who includes you, respects you, likes you, maybe loves you. Just the feeling. Could be an imperfect relationship, could be multiple beings. Third breath, breathing while feeling cared about. And then three breaths in a row at your own pace, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. Breathing while feeling caring. And breathing while feeling cared about. another couple of breaths so that you yourself are more established in this way of being and feeling. That was really beautiful. And besides just feeling good, it is all back to that sort of practice that you talked about, about making a specific positive feeling last longer so that it was actually changing our brain. So that practice right now changed our brain. Yeah. In these practices, we come home to ourselves. We come home. Yes, I love that. The last question I have for you is, Rick, what's looking up? So can you share with us? I know NeuroDharma is out now. Mm -hmm. That's definitely looking up and, yeah. and everyone should check that out. But what are you hopeful about? What are you positively anticipating? That's looking up. For me personally, uh, I'm wrapping up a lot of stuff. And frankly, going into a future that is, for me, an undiscovered country. And now I'm complete with so many things. I'm really looking forward to, I don't know. And in, and enjoying and marinating in what you've already created. Yeah, I think that's living. a pretty good thing. That's like <laughs> To make out. it all go full circle. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good thing. So the last thing we do, um, how we end the Looking Up podcast is I will pick a card for you. This is from my deck of cards, the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. And 
If you're not familiar with it, each card has a holistic or science-based mm. prompt or suggestion that actually increases optimism and resiliency and joy. Again, these are not affirmations. They are actionable items. Yeah. They tell you what to do. And so I'm going to pick your card for you. Totally at random. Great. Let's see. Interesting. Okay. As empathic creatures, our emotions are so often swayed by someone else's experience. Try and commit to spending the entire day strong in your own emotional state, even while around so many others. You know what it's like. You can be having a great day. Then you walk into an elevator at work and you are listening to someone complain about the traffic, the bad coffee, the overwhelming amount of have-tos on their to-do list. Then you catch yourself joining in, just merely trying to relate. Now you are having a bad day and noticing all the things that have the ability to bother you. This is so interesting. This is like the negativity bias. <laughs> Try doing the exact opposite. Listen, witness, always have empathy, but stay true to your own experience. Well, beautiful. Thank you for the gift of that. That's great. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on, looking up. Um, I had such an amazing time chatting with mm. you, learning from you like almost like riffing with you yeah. like as if we were playing in a band in our garage. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your research and your practical tools. I know everyone will appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.